On January 28th, 1986, the Challenger shuttle lifted off from NASA headquarters in Houston, Texas. Seven crew members were aboard the shuttle as it left the launch pad on an uncharacteristically cold morning in Houston, about 30 degrees. The Challenger, as you probably know, never made it out of Earth's atmosphere. A crowd of friends and family on location and a live TV audience around the world watched in horror as the Challenger shuttle exploded 73 seconds after its launch, destroying the shuttle and tragically ending the lives of its seven crew members. Why did this happen? Questions, this question has been asked. There have been studies done, documentaries produced, all investigating how did this go wrong. And in a nutshell, it was a failure of leadership. It was a failure of leadership. You see, the engineering company that was responsible for designing the solid rocket booster, which is the component that, that failed, knew that there was a potentially catastrophic problem with a rubber O-ring that was responsible for sealing in the air. And when it met cold temperatures, they simply didn't know how it would respond because all of their tests had been at 40 degrees and above because no one expected freezing temperatures in Houston. And so the engineers communicated repeatedly their concern to the shuttle managers at NASA, including a conference call the night before the launch urging NASA not to go through with the launch, to delay it, to give them time to prepare and to study and to figure out how to make sure this O-ring would stay tight even in cold temperatures. But the managers at NASA couldn't be bothered. Frustrated already by several delays of the launch and eager to retain government funding and public interest in their shuttle program, they refused to delay the launch any further, and the unthinkable happened. The importance of wise, humble leadership can hardly be overstated. When an organization or a project or a church or a nation have wise, humble leaders, they can achieve great things. But when such leadership is absent, when those in positions of authority or management refuse to listen to counsel or seek their own personal welfare at the expense of others and won't even heed severe warnings, disaster happens. And that's what's going on in the life of God's people when Samuel enters the scene. As we enter this stage of the history of the people of Israel, there has been a gigantic failure of leadership. Wise and humble and godly leadership has been all but absent from God's people for a long season, and it's a mess. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel. If you have a Bible around you that looks like this, the black hard cover, it's on page 211, just to save you a little bit of flipping around. If you're not using that uh, edition of the Bible, 1 Samuel will be between Judges and Ruth and First and Second Kings, so just for a little bit of context. So we're embarking today on a journey through the book of 1 Samuel. I don't know exactly how long it will last. We'll kind of let the text uh, decide that for us as we walk through it. 
But let me give you a little bit of background to what's going on in the, the people of Israel and their life at this point. So just to backtrack and give you a little bit of a, a scope of uh, the people of Israel, the, the nation of Israel was really born in slavery. So because of Joseph and his family, uh, the, the, the people of God, the people of Israel were in Egypt as they grew and as they multiplied and, uh, and eventually were serving as slaves under Pharaoh in Egypt. About 400 years of slavery uh, is where really Israel as a nation is born. Then God raised up a man named Moses who would lead the people of Israel out of slavery, deliver them from slavery in Egypt, and led them to Mount Sinai where he would establish his law. That's the story of Moses going up to the mountain and meeting with God and coming down with these stone tablets that have the law of God written on them. This is God giving his law to his people. I've rescued you, and now I've given you my law. I'm making my covenant with you. He promised them uh, a land, the land of Canaan, and, uh, and he was going to lead them into that land to conquer the people who lived there and take over this land, but the people didn't trust God. Their, their unfaithfulness leads them to 40 years of wilderness wandering. So there's the long stretch of time in Israel's history where they're just wandering about the wilderness, eating manna day by day, and basically the faithless generation uh, die off. And it's the new generation led by a new leader named Joshua who end up taking possession of this promised land. So that's the book of Joshua covers uh, that story. So now the people of God have been constituted as a nation. God has made a covenant with them. He's promised them all of these blessings and abundance if they would obey, if they would keep covenant with him. But instead of remaining faithful to their covenant with God, they intermarry with the pagan peoples who lived in Canaan. They adopt the pagan rituals associated with their false gods. And so now instead of worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, and representing him in holy lives, they're now worshiping false gods and intermarrying with these pagan people. Israel as a nation at this point is a loose coalition of 12 tribes or families. And these tribes are governed by judges. Uh, who God raises up for a season to lead his people. And this period of Judges is utter chaos. If you read the book called Judges and Ruth, actually on the back end of that, Judges and Ruth, it is an absolute mess. Wickedness abounds. Their identity as the people of God is all but abandoned. And God himself is almost completely forgotten except for a few little instances of hope and light along the way. In fact, the slogan, the kind of repeated refrain throughout the book of Judges describing Israel during this period is, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's a mess. And honestly, it sounds a little bit like our own day, don't you think? Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. In fact, if you're wondering why in the world is a 3,000-year-old Hebrew history book relevant for our day and useful for my own life, that slogan about everyone doing what's right in their own eyes might help you make that connection. Maybe we're not that far off to say nothing of the fact that this is God's word and he speaks through its pages. So 1 and 2 Samuel is actually, in in the Hebrew Bible, just one book. Really, their books were not like 
pages that you turn. It was a scroll. And first and second Samuel was just one scroll, the book of Samuel. So our English Bibles have made that division. And uh, for the sake of this series, we're going to keep with that division. But the book of Samuel tells the story of Israel's transition from the period of Judges, this kind of chaotic, loosey-goosey, anything-goes period of life for the people of Israel, the transition from the period of Judges into the period of kings, that is, into a monarchy where the people of Israel will be governed by a king who himself is governed by God through a prophet who would speak his word to him. And so God establishes this system of government, if you will, where there's a king and a prophet. And the prophet delivers to the king the word of God. And then the king is responsible to lead the people to obey the voice of God. And so Samuel is an important figure, an important person in this transition because not only will he anoint the first king, He also becomes the first prophet to speak God's word in the ear of the king. Through the establishment of this monarchy, that that God is is setting the stage for the dynasty of David and his covenant with David that his kingdom would endure forever. And that covenant will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who would be the son of David, who would inhabit the throne of David forever. And so this period of transition then is one not just for Israel as a nation, but for all the world and for us as well, because Jesus Christ would come and reign as the king on the throne of David, and it's this king to whom we owe our lives and allegiance. And so with this transition in view, Samuel is introduced to us in chapter 1 both as God's answer to the prayer of Hannah, his mother, who we'll meet in just a minute, and to Israel's need for godly leadership and Israel's need for a prophet to hear the word of God. So with that background, we're going to jump right into the text. I don't want to spend too much time just painting all of the setting, setting the scene. We're going to jump right into the text of 1 Samuel. And we're going to look today at chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. And here's what we'll find. God sees your burden, and he's ready with grace. God sees your burden, and he's ready with grace. Let's read the first eight verses, and then we'll pause and discuss as we go. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city, to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. 
Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So just a little bit of commentary on the background here. So you've got all these fun city names and people names, which is always great to read. Ramathayim Zophim, which is elsewhere in Samuel, just called the Ramah, which is a merciful choice for readers, uh, English readers, um, is a town located in uh, the tribal area of Ephraim, which is north of Jerusalem. And it's in Ephraim that, um, that the town of Bethlehem will, uh, it, uh, is located. So... Ephraim, north of Jerusalem, and we meet here in this town a man named Elkanah. And we learn two things about Elkanah from these first couple of verses. Number one, he has a respectable Hebrew lineage, right? You've got this, this genealogy tracing him back several generations, right? He's the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Zuth was an Ephrathite, okay? Identifying him with the city of Bethlehem. So that probably means that it's very important to him to have sons to carry on the family line, right? If you're pointing to your lineage and your heritage, it's important to you to be able to say now that someone else is the son of Elkanah, right? It's going to be important to him. So we learn that about him. Secondly, we learn that he's wealthy, at least wealthy enough to support a second wife. And so... Elkanah is the husband of these two wives, which is a little bit beyond the bounds of what God established for uh, the pattern of marriage, but nevertheless. We learn in the next several verses about Hannah's burden. So let's take a look at Hannah's burden. I think we see three elements of the burden that she is bearing. Number one, a barren womb. Hannah has a barren womb. Of course, he told us in, in verse two, right as she was introduced, that the name of the one wife was Hannah, and in fact, probably his first wife was Hannah, and the second wife, Peninnah, was probably came into the picture because Hannah could not have children. And so Hannah has no children. But not only does she not have children, we learn down in verse 5 that the Lord has closed her womb, which is a way of saying she is infertile. She is unable to have children. And I think it's not too hard for us to envision and imagine, and some, have may, some of you have maybe experienced firsthand the pain and the disappointment of, of infertility, of barrenness. We think of the pain of barrenness mostly in terms of emotional pain, like the failure to fulfill personal life goals or personal dreams. And I don't mean to downplay that at all. That pain is real and deep. But in this agrarian culture, where they depended on the, the crop of, and the yield of crop of the land for survival. And a woman depended upon the men in her life, her father, her husband, and her sons, for, uh, to take care of her. Having sons was more than mere emotional fulfillment. It was survival. Sons would help tend the land and grow crops for the family to eat so that there was enough for them. Sons would provide for their mothers in their old age. So they depended literally upon their, their adult sons to care for them. Sons would serve the nation as warriors in battle. And so the upshot of all this is that women who bore sons, especially who bore many sons, were honored. 
kind of seen as, as national heroes. And women who did not bear sons were seen not just as failures, but as a drain on society. So there's this social attitude toward those who are barren and cannot have children, especially sons, as well as the personal sense of loss and disappointment, as well as the actual practical danger that women were in when there were no sons to grow old and take care for them. So to have no sons in Hannah's situation is to have no stability, no security, and no future. This is Hannah's plight. And as if that weren't bad enough, in addition to her barren womb, she also has a bitter foe, who we meet in verse 6. Her rival, speaking of the second wife, Peninnah, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So year after year, Peninnah is... is not only does she have many children, but she has a habit of rubbing it in Hannah's face, right? Maybe making little comments along the way about it's so hard to take care of all these children I have. It must be so easy for you, Hannah, with nobody to, to think about or have to care for. Little jabs, perhaps, year after year. This is habitual. This is long. This is a, a chronic thorn in the side for Hannah with this bitter foe. Maybe this is one of many reasons that God's design for marriage is between one woman and one man, so there's not all of this competition going on, but I digress. A barren womb, a bitter foe, and a bonehead husband. Look at verse 8. Guys, this might be a good time to look away or pretend you're not paying attention or something. This is a little embarrassing. Look, look at Elkanah in verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, said, Hannah, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? What, what's the big deal? Why are you so sad? Aren't I enough for you? Lord, help us. Husbands are not always the epitome of understanding and care. Maybe we all have a little bit of Elkanah in us. Nevertheless, his comfort is very little in the face of this uh, burden that she's bearing. Listen, family could be tough right? We're all parts of families. We came from families. We, some of us have families, and we all recognize that family can be hard. And maybe you have the voice of a panina in your head. Maybe a sibling or a parent who told you that you'd never amount to anything. Or why can't you be more like your older brother? Right? Those voices linger. Maybe you don't have a panina exactly who's actively belittling you, but maybe you feel pressure from family members to hit that next milestone or take that next step. Maybe it comes in the form of comments and questions that are more subtle and probably well-intentioned, but maybe things like, so is there any special someone in your life? Or when are you going to give us grandbabies? Are you trying yet? Things like that, that maybe just are constant reminders of that burden that you bear, that sense of loss, or maybe someone's expectations that you feel like you have to live up to. Maybe you have a spouse who just doesn't seem to understand you, right? No matter what I say, he just doesn't get it, and you just don't feel supported or comforted in your pain. There are any number of ways that family relationships can become a burden 
to us and a voice in our ear. And you can be sure that God knows the pain and difficulty that family can cause. And I think we'll see in Hannah's story that God can use even your family dysfunction to redeem your situation and to turn your heart toward him. That's exactly what happens in Hannah's story. In her distress, Hannah turns to the Lord. That's what we see in these next few verses. Hannah turns to the Lord. Look at verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, of course, we know that Hannah didn't eat because it just told us that she would not eat. So this just means the family has finished their meal. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. We see here a decisive turn in Hannah's heart. I think that little detail that after they finished their meal, Hannah rose is important. Because remember, this burden has year after year. It's gone on and on. Peninnah always provokes her. She still is without children. They go up to Shiloh to worship year after year. But in this moment, on this occasion, Hannah rose. She is decided to take her burden to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. This is an important turn. It's an important turn for Hannah and for her story, but it's an important turn for the people of Israel because of the way that God will respond to this prayer. And as recipients of God's grace in Jesus, we, it's important for us. God's grace to us in Christ will ride on the back of this prayer and prayers just like it to answer his people's cries of desperation with deliverance and hope. So let's look as she goes to the Lord, turns her heart toward the Lord and brings her burden. Look how she starts her prayer in verse 11. O Lord of hosts, when you see the word Lord in all capital letters like that, what's behind that in the Hebrew Bible is the name of God, Yahweh. This is the covenant name of God that he revealed to Moses, Yahweh. So she addresses him by name, O Yahweh of hosts. What does that mean? It means he has hosts of heaven, of angels at his command. The heavenly commander-in-chief, the God of heaven and earth, the one with armies of angels at his disposal. And Hannah has the audacity to believe that the commander of the hosts of heaven has time and interest in the burdens of a poor farmer's wife with no social standing, no future, and nothing to offer. And in staggeringly good news for weak, broken people like us, she is absolutely right. He cares for Hannah. He listens to her groaning and pleading, and he will respond in astonishing grace. Christian, are you even faintly aware of the absurd privilege you have in approaching Yahweh of hosts in prayer? 
Oh, that we would turn our hearts more quickly, more eagerly, more hungrily toward the Lord in prayer. That he might meet us there with grace upon grace upon grace. This, as I read this and I see Hannah's bold faith coming before Yahweh with her request and pouring out her heart, it's an indictment. I read it as an indictment to myself. How little do I pray? And how weakly do I often pray? It makes me want to dig deeper, to lean farther into the Lord and bring my heart to him. And the importance of prayer and the way that God responds to prayer in grace can hardly be overstated. The decisive work of God in salvation rides on the back of the prayers of the saints. So if we're not going to the Lord in prayer, bringing our burdens to him, we might be hampering the work that he means to do. So she goes to the Lord, she pours out her heart, she brings her burden. Let's talk about this vow that she makes. She vows a vow and she says, if you'll give me, if you'll give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. You read that and you go, that's kind of weird. Why am I promising that my kid is not going to ever get a haircut? What's being referred to here is what's called the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was introduced back in Numbers chapter 6. And it was a special voluntary consecration of oneself to God's service. Sometimes, like in this case, a parent makes that vow on behalf of their child. But usually it was a personal voluntary decision for someone to take on this vow to lend themselves to the service of God. Sometimes it was for a particular period of time. Other times it was lifelong. I vow for my whole life uh, to, to be consecrated to you in this way. Now this Nazarite vow had with it stricter boundaries of conduct, including not getting a haircut, including abstaining from wine. And so you'll see things like that um, in, these, in the various places in the Bible where it comes about. There's two other notable Nazarites in the Bible that I'll point your attention to. The first of those is Samson. In Judges chapter 13, in that period of Judges, one of the men that God raised up to lead his people was Samson. And Samson had taken this Nazarite vow. And you might remember that the whole kind of drama of Samson's story hinges upon the cutting of his hair. Why would the cutting of Samson's hair make a difference to his strength? It's because he had, he had essentially forsaken the vow that he had made to God. And so God, for a time, removed his presence and his strength from him. And so Samson was a Nazarite. And we'll meet another Nazarite in the book of Luke in John the Baptist the one who would be the forerunner of Jesus Christ and would announce the coming of the Messiah. Don't forget that connection. We'll come back to it later. So Hannah says, in other words, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him to you. He's yours. Remember your servant, give your servant a son, and he's yours for life. He'll serve you forever, and I'll consecrate him to you. Parents, this is a great picture for us of how we should hold open-handedly the children that God has entrusted to us. Whether you bear children biologically, or you have children through adoption, or you care for children through foster care, or something along those lines, the children in your care are not yours, they're his. 
He's simply entrusted them to your care to steward them. Let's be sure that we're teaching them the gospel, that we're directing their hearts toward Jesus, that we're pleading with God to use them for his glory. This is a good example to us of how to open-handedly hold the children that God entrusts to us, to our care. Lord, they're yours. We want them to serve you. Well, Hannah continues praying. And now we're going to see uh, Eli uh, observing what it looks like and kind of a misunderstanding. Look at verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, that's the priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Look at the manner of Hannah's prayer before God. It is earnest, it is heartfelt, it is passionate, even demonstrative, such that Eli, looking on, assumes that she's a drunk because of the, like, the raving and ranting and moving about and the moving of lips without sound, all of this stuff. He assumes that she's drunk. When's the last time that your conversation with God was mistaken for the alcohol-fueled ravings of a drunk? That's never happened to me, just being honest. So Eli rebukes her, but Hannah corrects his misunderstanding. No, she's troubled in spirit. She's pouring out her soul before the Lord. She's speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. She is bearing her soul before God in prayer. I love what Dale Ralph Davis says about this. He says, now there is a myth circulating around the church that often goes like this. Believers in the Old Testament period didn't have the freedom and personal approach in prayer that we do. But once you see Hannah in prayer, how can you doubt that she has found the same throne of grace and knows something of the same boldness with its occupant? Christians then should allow Hannah to be our schoolmistress to lead us to Christ, to instruct us in communion with God. Many Christians need to realize that Yahweh, our God, allows us to do this, to pour out our griefs and sobs and perplexities at his feet. Our Lord can handle our tears. It won't make him nervous or ill at ease if you unload your distresses at his feet. God can handle it, and he invites it. He's honored by it. So Hannah's turned her heart to the Lord. She's poured out her soul in prayer. And look at verse 18. Eli has kind of given this blessing to her. May the Lord grant the petition that you've made. And in verse 18, she says, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Hannah's heart is uplifted through the simple act of praying. She doesn't have an answer to her prayer yet. She has no assurance that God is going to give her what she wants. There's, it doesn't tell us that she had some special revelation from God, right, about a future son. And yet, when she returns home, her heart is light. Her face is no longer sad, and now she's eating, whereas before she'd refused to eat. What happened? Why did her heart 
turn? Why did her, her, her mood lighten and her load lighten in response to prayer? You know, it reminds me of Philippians 4, 6 and 7, which says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Please notice what brings peace in this verse. It's not God's answer to your prayer. It's the prayer itself. Make your request known to God, and the peace that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The fact that you've brought your anxieties to the Lord and invited him into your suffering brings peace to the heart and mind. And what sort of peace? It's a peace that goes deeper than knowing the answer. Right? Peace that surpasses understanding. It's a peace deeper than solving the problem or getting my request answered. It's the peace that comes from knowing that the God of the universe, Yahweh of hosts, is hearing my request and is working for my good and his glory. That's the invitation that we have in prayer. Take your request to God, and just in the act of making your request known, peace that's deeper than an answer, deeper than a solution. Peace that surpasses understanding will guard your heart and your mind. I think that's the peace that Hannah must have experienced in this moment. She's poured out her soul. She made the decision to bring her burden to the Lord and now she's laid it out there. And with that done, recognizing she's powerless to do anything about it, she takes heart. She takes comfort knowing that God has heard her and that he's at work on her behalf. So let's look now to verses 19 and 20 and see the beautiful way that God remembers Hannah. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, which is a way of saying that they were physically intimate with one another. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The Lord remembered Hannah. I love that phrase. Had he forgotten about her? Of course not. Was it like a notification went off on his phone or something? He was like, oops, I was supposed to bless Hannah and I totally forgot. Of course not. That's, it's not like he'd forgotten her. What it means is this. God knew her. God saw her burden. And he was ready to answer with grace to her cries. And she names him Samuel which means the Lord heard. It's a combination of the Hebrew word shama for hear, and el, which is short for Elohim, which is God. The Lord heard. His very name means the faithfulness of God, the remembrance of God, that God hears the cries of his people and he answers with grace. And so Samuel will rise up and anoint kings and be this prophet to speak God's word to the king and to the people of Israel. And his very name points not to himself, not even to the king on the throne, but to Yahweh of hosts, the faithful covenant-keeping God who hears the burdens of his people and knows and remembers. And just like he remembered Hannah, he remembers you. 
when you take your burdens and your frustrations and your fears and your distress to the Lord and you cry out to him and you bring your burden to him, he hears, he knows, and he remembers. He's ready to answer with grace. You know, this is not the only time in Scripture that the Lord opened the womb of a barren woman. He had done so hundreds of years earlier for Sarah, the wife of Abraham. God had promised to make Abraham a nation so great in number that they would be like the stars of the night sky. And more than that, through this child and through this family, he said all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, of course, that blessing pointed not to Isaac himself, not even to the people of Israel specifically, but to one who would come through his family line thousands of years later, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, the book of Galatians tells us. And, you know, a few thousand years later, he would open the barren womb of a woman named Elizabeth, who would deliver a boy named John. A young man who would take the Nazarite vow, just as Samuel had. And John was entrusted with a special message. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John himself was not that light. He bore witness to the light, he tells us in John chapter 1. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who comes to take away our sin. John the Baptist was appointed with that message, with announcing the coming of this king. And he was born to a barren woman and took a Nazarite vow. You see, Samuel's birth is important not just because of how it blessed Hannah, and not ultimately even in the blessing he would be to God's people Israel in paving the way for a new king. No, Samuel's birth is important because it directs our eyes forward to the coming of another king, a king who would reign forever on the throne of his father David, the king to whom you and I owe our life and allegiance, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.